Well, good morning. We'll turn your Bible to John chapter 5. Thanks, Adam, choir, orchestra, faithfully leading us this morning. Thank you, Jim and Tom, for serving the kingdom of Christ and the churches with your ministry, Gideon's International. Uh, just a brief testimony on the Gideons. We, when I was in Louisville, partnered with a church uh, in downtown Toronto, Canada, and the pastor there, uh, his name was Kesavon. He had been in prison for nine years, part of a street. Uh, he, was a, he was in a gang, and uh, there was, a, there was a, a murder in one of the, the fights. He, he didn't commit the murder, but he went to prison for nine years. And a Gideon brought him a Bible while he was in prison. And he read the Bible and was converted to Jesus Christ. And now he is a church planner with the North American Mission Board in Toronto, Canada. And so God's word does prosper. And Gideons are a vital ministry, and we thank you for your service. In any way uh, you can help the Gideons, please pray about that. Because God's word is going forth, and it's accomplishing its good purpose. Isaiah 55. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time this morning, as he already has. Lord, thank you. We have been able to gather in Sunday school uh, under gifted teachers, and we thank you for the gift of fellowship in Sunday school. We've been able to gather this morning and sing under gifted musicians, and Adam, a gifted leader in worship. And Lord, we thank you. We've been able to uh, observe a baptism and we thank you, Lord, for the reality that you are a seeking and saving God. And now, Lord, we pray you would bless this preaching moment. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 19th century artist Edward Hicks was remembered by several folk paintings uh, on one theme. In them, you have this child... And he is standing there with various animals, an ox, a wolf, a lion, a leopard, and a lamb. And in some of the paintings, he has his arm around the lion's neck. The paintings were called the Peaceable Kingdom. And they were inspired by the promise of Isaiah 11, verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and a little child shall lead them. So Hicks was captivated by this promise of shalom, uh, this promise of peace on earth. And yet something very depressing happened uh, to his paintings through the years. They became less peaceable. His animals began to snarl each, at each other in the paintings. They, they looked un, uh, uneasy and they looked tense. And, and then he began to place them farther and farther apart. Indeed, by the time of his last painting, they, it looked like an all-out war. And the difference in the paintings reflected a change that was taking place in Edward Hicks' own soul. He had witnessed so much pain and suffering and heartache and division and disharmony 
brokenness that he began to lose confidence there would ever be shalom, peace on earth. Maybe you, like me, can identify sometimes with those sentiments. Turn on the news, and it's very discouraging, isn't it? Read the newspaper. Sin has caused a great disturbance. With all the horrors we witness every day, uh, how can we believe that indeed there will be a peaceable kingdom? How can we believe there indeed will be full shalom, full peace on earth? Well, one of the answers to that question are the seven sign miracles in the Gospel of John. There are seven sign miracles. All of these signs point to that destination, as we saw last week. They point to the longed-for, peaceable kingdom ruled by the king, King Jesus. We have seen him turn the water into wine. We have seen him heal the official son. And now we see the third sign miracle in John chapter 5. And it comes in the context of, of brokenness. Indeed, we see in the first part of this passage the universal helplessness of the human condition. The universal helplessness of the human condition. Look with me in verse 1. After this, text doesn't tell us how long after this, the events of chapter 4 doesn't matter. John would tell us if it mattered. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. We don't know which feast. If it mattered, he would have told us. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he's going there for the feast. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now just as a side, many liberals used to latch on to this and say, there's no way John the disciple wrote this. Because there's no evidence there was this pool. There's no evidence there were these five roofed colonnades. So this must have been written much later. But guess what? In the 1960s, they found it. In fact, you can go there today. I have a picture with me there at, the, at this pool. In verse 3, it says, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, if you've been with us in Genesis chapter 1, as we studied a few weeks ago on Sunday night, you see that this is a horrific picture that clashes with the good creation of Genesis chapter 1. Uh, this is physical suffering on display. And this kind of suffering preaches to us every day that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Indeed, things are not the way they are promised they will be. And that is our hope. But as is often is the case in Scripture, and especially in John, the physical reality of things also represent spiritual realities. For instance, Jesus says, we'll see, that he's the light of the world. 
We know this physical light represents something spiritual about Jesus and the Godhead, right? Purity and glory. Uh, Jesus says he's the door. Well, that's not a physical door, but he is the spiritual entrance to the Father, right? Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the, the blood. He represents the temple. So you have the spiritual that is symbolized by the physical. And, and so though these are real issues, these are invalids, these are broken people, and it does remind us as, a, as the people of God, what is our role in caring for and ministering to these broken people? It also speaks to the universality of our own brokenness. These ailments at the sheep gate are real, but they also represent Adam's race spiritually. And we are all a part of Adam's race. This represents us in our natural state. Just consider how our immaterial sinfulness, that is the sins we commit inwardly, in the heart, in our affections, by our will, in our minds. Consider how these immaterial sins are described in Scripture as having a debilitating effect on our physical body parts. So, for instance, our eyes and ears. Matthew 8 says, Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And that means that we can't see God and his glory. We can't see God and our need for him. We can't hear his word in, in a, a way that displays faith and obedience apart from the grace of God. How about our foreheads? Isaiah 48 says our foreheads are as brass. What does that reflect? That in our natural state, we are, uh, as we see the obstinate character in Pilgrim's Progress. We are obstinate, we are stubborn, and resistant to the things of God. How about our hands? Our hands are debilitated. Hebrews 12, lift up your drooping hands. Hands reflect service. We naturally do not want to serve. Naturally, we do not want to help our fellow man. How about our feet? Proverbs 1, our feet are prone to run to evil. They're attracted to evil. Our feet, Proverbs 4, turn to evil. Our feet are swift to shed blood. How about our necks? Acts 7. Our necks are stiff-necked. We are resilient in our sin. Our necks, Isaiah 3 says, are outstretched. We are naturally like uh, these arrogant, pompous uh, peacocks. Our necks are outstretched. Uh, even our knees are not immune. Hebrews 12, 12, strengthen your weak knees. How about our tongues? Our tongues are severely affected by sin. They flatter, Psalm 5. They boast, Psalm 12. They slander, Psalm 15. And they deceive, Romans 3. Our tongues are affected. 
What grief, what chaos sin has brought to the world. But I want you to hear the hope of when Messiah would come. And you'll recognize that hope on display in our passage today. 700 years earlier, Isaiah gives us this hope. In Isaiah 35, strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold your God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the, the lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. You see, when Jesus is performing these miracles, and we recognize all of these uh, miracles, even in this promise of Isaiah 35, it is signaling that day is here in the Messiah. And so that is our context as we come to this man who is debilitated. Verse 5, it says, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, the average length of life at that time was around 40 years. So this man had been debilitated for as long as most people lived. And the length of his ailment, I believe, drives home the hopelessness of his situation. There is nothing on earth, humanly speaking, that can fix his situation. He's been broken for 38 years. But note as well, perhaps in your Bible, except Monty's, verse 4 is missing. Now, what's going on here? Did the, did the translator go liberal on us? No. <laughs> Since the translation of the wonderful King James Version, we love the King James Version, they have found older manuscripts. And those older manuscripts are closer to the original autographs. And verse 4 is missing in the older manuscript. So it was likely included in there, kind of like an editorial comment later on, to explain why all the invalids would gather at this pool. If you'll notice in your footnote, maybe you have a footnote in your Bible, verse 4 would read, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after stirring of the water, was healed of whatever disease he had. Well, certainly that doesn't even, that's not even consistent with the theology of the Bible. But someone added that later because this is what these invalids were believing. They were believing in superstition. And so they would gather at this pool. And the first one in, after it was stirred, and it was likely an artesian well that stirred it, and they didn't understand that, they would sit there and wait to be first after the waters had been stirred. So these people are believing in superstition. It's their only hope. When your hope is not in the living God, it's going to be in some kind of superstition. These people reflect, just look in the mirror. 
If your hope is not God in Jesus Christ, these people reflect you. Well, that brings us to the second part of this passage, the universal question. We've seen the universal condition, but notice the universal question addressing the human condition. This is the question of all questions. Look with me in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, I have visited many hospital rooms as a pastor through the years. I have never asked anyone on the hospital bed, do you, do you want to be healed? Because I know what the answer would be. It almost seems ludicrous. Uh, but first of all, notice the word knew. This indicates that Jesus knew his real condition. He knew that he had already been there a long time. This is supernatural knowledge. But given what Jesus knew, it does seem a bit surprising that he would ask this question. Do you want to be healed? But the question is likely intended to warn the man that being healed would bring new responsibilities. I think, in fact, the reason we're told that he was at the feast is that it was known that panhandlers made a killing at feast. All the, the pilgrims would come in for the feast, and, and the beggars would be there, and they would make enough money until the next feast. And so Jesus is asking a penetrating question. Do you really want to be healed? Because if you're healed, it's going to bring to you a whole new set of responsibilities. No more handouts. In fact, there would be new challenges that would come if you are truly healed. And this healing would have to be on Jesus' terms, not on this man's terms. In other words, not only would he have to trust Jesus for the healing, he would have to trust Jesus for the consequences of the healing. But this is the question that Jesus asked all of us. Now, when Jesus asks a question and when God asks a question, it's not so that he can gather information. He's omniscient. The questions are for us. So that is the question that Jesus is asking you today. Do you really want to be healed? Do you really want to be saved? You know, many people like the idea of healing, but they want healing on their terms, not Jesus' terms. Do you want your marriage to be healed? Well, anybody in their right mind that's in a marriage would say, yes, I want my marriage healed. I want it fixed. Do you really? Do you really? Because if the Lord's going to heal your marriage... He's going to do it on his terms and not yours. It's going to bring about new responsibilities on your part. Do you really want that fractured relationship with this other brother, this other sister in Christ where sin has brought alienation? Do you really want it reconciled? Oh, yes, of course I do. Do you really? Because if you really want that relationship reconciled, it's going to bring about responsibilities on your part. 
That is the question that Jesus is asking us all. Everybody wants their brokenness to be healed. But most people prefer something more than the healing of that brokenness. And that's why they never experience true healing. Uh, This week I was reading about Don Felder, guitarist for the Eagles. And he was describing uh, the the brokenness in his life. Uh, They were on tour incessantly. He was never with his wife. He was never with his children. And there was all kinds of devastation that was coming from that. He was addicted to drugs. And he was really concerned about his lifestyle. But here's what he said. But then I looked at my house in Malibu on the ocean. Six acres on the ocean in Malibu. I looked at all of my cars. I looked at the vacations that we were able to go on. I looked at my fame. I I looked at my payroll, my bank account. And I realized there was nothing I could do about the heartache I was causing. You see the point? He wanted things fixed, but there were things he wanted more than his situation fixed. And I believe that is a good analogy for most people who have brokenness in their lives. Do you really want to be healed? But pastor, you don't know what it's going to cost me. Do you trust Jesus with the consequences of your being healed? That's the question he's asking this man. Well, notice in verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. He is clearly evading the question. Do you want to be healed? Well, sir, uh, I try to be first, but then someone steps in front of me. And so the fact that he appears to be evading Jesus' question reveals that Jesus has placed his finger on the real issue. And that brings us to the final part of this passage, the universal answer to the human condition. We've looked at the universal condition. We've looked at the universal question, and now we see the universal answer. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Remarkable. The very thing that this man was unable to do, Jesus commanded him to do. Jesus creates what he commands. All right? That's important for us. Um, And notice in verse 9, and at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and he walked. And so here we see two complementary truths that we have to maintain, and especially when we get to John chapter 6. And those two truths are these. The word of Christ is sovereign. It comes to bear on brokenness, and it is sovereign. And yet, this man has human responsibility. His responsibility is to take up his bed and walk. Now that responsibility is grounded by the sovereign word of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus commands, and this man gets up and walks. What he needed in this world is what every broken image bearer needs. The grace of Christ coming to bear by the word of Christ. Now with that, we might think the story is over. Not so fast. It's just the beginning. In fact, I think this last part of this passage is the main reason John gives us this narrative. Notice in the second part of verse 9, now that day was the Sabbath. That's just not a throwaway line. John is just now informing us of something we did not know. Why did he wait till verse 9 to tell us now it's the Sabbath? Here's why I think he waited. There seems to be, and we'll, we'll see this in verse 11 most particularly, a, something of a, a creation, or in this case, recreation, and completion of work pattern. In other words, Jesus speaks the word, just like the Lord spoke the word in Genesis 1, and creation is healed. In this case, this broken man is healed, and then we read of the Sabbath. I think that's intentional, especially when we get to verse 11. We'll see that. With that said, this is the first bit of ominous news in the gospel of John. And this will not go away until the cross. Things are just now beginning to get heated up in the ministry of Christ. When the work of Christ is coming to bear on a situation, there will be warfare. Notice in verse 10. The man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. It was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, that's quite remarkable. Um, the English for readability says, it is the Sabbath. But literally, it reads, Sabbath! Sabbath! That's the word that they use, Sabbath! And you can, it's almost comical if it wasn't so sad. You can see them coming out of the woodworks. Here's this man who hasn't walked for 38 years, and they would have known him. This man has been all the festivals for 38 years. He would have been very well known in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, a man who's been an invalid for 38 years is walking down the street with his mat that he's been laying on for decades. And their first response is, Sabbath! It's quite remarkable. Uh, it, it almost seems sophomoric. It is. And it almost appears benign. They're just being uh, insensitive. But this is the tremor of an earthquake to come. This is the first hostile expressions that these Jewish leaders are going to aim at Jesus. Now, what's going on here? The rabbis had written a book centuries earlier, The Sabbath and How Not to Break It. It was based on the fourth commandment, that we're to keep the Sabbath. 
But in order to protect that command, they had built a fence around the command. And they added all of these man-made rules to protect us from, from really breaking the commands. In fact, there were 39 commands that were added to the fourth commandment. 39 ways that you could break the Sabbath. And one of those, in fact, it was the last one, carrying something from place to place on the Sabbath. But that's not what the law said. It's not how the law was intended. They added the law. And in fact, I would say that's, that's behind what we see in most churches when there are splits and division. It's not that you have two parties that are concerned about the glory of God. They are concerned about man-made laws that someone has broken. That's what we see here. And, and you know the telltale sign of their spiritual condition? They couldn't care less about the broken and the hurting and the lost. That was the telltale sign. They couldn't care about the marginalized. They were more concerned with chapter 39, paragraph 8, subsection 2, clause 7 of their book. Sabbath, don't carry mats on the Sabbath. And this lack of love, this lack of compassion really reflected the fact that they had lost the whole purpose of the law. Later, Jesus would say in Matthew 22 that... The purpose of the law is to drive us to love God and to love our neighbor. And so Jesus, in response to their book, was writing a new book, The Sabbath Sign and the Destination It Points to. The rest, the shalom that he is restoring with the broken and the sinners. Notice in verse 11, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. This is more literally, the man who made me whole. And I love the King James here. I think it's a better translation than the ESV. He that made me whole. Jesus didn't simply heal him. He made him whole. He brought shalom he brought the peaceable kingdom to bear on this man's brokenness. Indeed, this word made, it's not in the ESV, but it's in the King James. It's in the New American Standard. It's in the NIV. It's in the Christian Standard Bible. It is a better translation. And the reason I say this is because this language of made is the language that was used in Genesis when God made, God created the world good by his word. Jesus is remaking the world by his word. Well, notice in verse 12 to 14 as we close out this passage. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus hath withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. This man is worshiping in the temple. He hasn't been in the temple for at least 38 years. He found him in the temple. I have a, it's not telling us, but I have a sneaking suspicion he's worshiping. He's been made fit to go into the temple. 
They found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, you are well, Jesus says to him. That's in the perfect tense. English doesn't have a perfect tense. But in the original language, perfect tense is something that happens in the past and has permanent, ongoing effects. This is referring to this man's state of well-being. But Jesus here appears to be saying that this man's condition was connected to some sin in this man's past or even his present. Again, notice, see you are well, sin no more. Then nothing worse may happen to you. He appears to be connecting his state of infirmity with, and brokenness to some particular sin. Now, I think this needs to be qualified just for a few minutes. First of all, lest we be like Job's friends, we need to emphasize here that ailments and physical brokenness in the Scriptures, or sickness for that matter, are not necessarily the immediate consequence of sin. We'll get to John chapter 9 where you have this man who's born blind and, and the disciples asked Jesus, uh, was it him or his parents who sinned that this man was born blind? And Jesus said neither. So that God's power may be displayed in him. And then you've got cases where, for instance, Paul uh, says that an illness that he had redirected him to Galatia. We see that in Galatians chapter 4. Or Timothy. Timothy uh, struggled with stomach uh, sickness in 1 Timothy 5. And then you see Paul leaving Trophimus in Miletus in 2 Timothy 4. In none of these cases is suffering linked to a particular sin. And so practically speaking, this means for us, it would be wrong for us to claim to know whether an illness or some kind of broken state is due to secret sin or to lack of faith, like you see sometimes with the prosperity preachers. With that said, Scripture does affirm that some illnesses, some ailments, some death is the immediate judicial consequence of specific sin. John will say later in 1 John 5, there's a sin leading to death. Yes, we are all sinners. We all die. We are a race of sinners. We are a race of death. D.A. Carson says, death is God's limit on creatures whose sin is that they want to be God's. But in some cases, judicial sentence is executed upon specific sins. So we see in 2 Kings 5, the leprosy of Gehazi. In Acts 5, the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 12, Herod is struck dead. And then even in Corinthians, we read that certain Corinthian church members were made sick or died because they abused the, church, uh, the Lord's table. So some deaths and some sins are a result of that. Of course, 
The central point in these cases is not that they're the most wicked of their generation, but it does drive home to us. Remember this, that sin merits such punishment. Sin merits such punishment. And the only, the only reason we haven't already been struck dead ourselves because of our sin is because of the Lord's mercies. If this was the normal way of things, the whole world would be one big cemetery. In fact, humanity would already be extinct. That brings us to a third point. There are some illnesses, there are some deaths that are the consequences of sinful acts where there's no supernatural judicial sentence executed by God, but it's just the cause and effect of living in a way that's opposed to the way God created us to live. So, for instance, um, David committed uh, adultery and, 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 and murder, and all of a sudden out of that flows all kinds of chaos in his family. You have Absalom and Amnon and, and all of his children. I mean, it just seems that they just go haywire because of the sins, cause and effect, sins of their, their father. Or how about physical issues that many people have? Sclerosis of the liver from abusing alcohol. Or perhaps there's certain kinds of high blood pressure, not all high blood pressure. That's a result of sinfully worrying all the time. Or perhaps you are so bitter at someone, you have refused to forgive them. And out of that comes physical sickness, frailties, those kinds of things. And they could be avoided if we really wanted to be healed. And Jesus says this man's issue is due to sin. And it reminds us, maybe there is a sin in your life right now. It's hidden. No one else knows about it. And this text is warning us. Maybe the brokenness in your life or in your family or in your marriage is due to that sin. And you need to deal with that sin. And Jesus, by his power and his sovereign grace and by no merit of this man, made him whole. That's the hope we have. That's the hope we have. But it would ultimately take the cross, wouldn't it? He says, go and sin no more. It would ultimately take the cross to set this man free from his sin. It would take the resurrection of Jesus ultimately to set this man free. Think about this. 1 Peter chapter 2. Cliff quoted this today in the baptism. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might get this, die to sin. And live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. It would come at the infinite cost of the death of the Son of God. And this is the third sign miracle that is intended to lift our gaze from this broken present age to that age where sin and death will be no more. That's great news for us, but only for those who want to be healed. Only for those who want to be healed. For those who do, Jesus is willing, he is able to transform your life 
through the forgiveness of sins secured by his cross. And there are Christians here today, I am convinced, that have brokenness in your life, in your family, in some relationship, because yes, you want healing, but there's something you want more than healing. And today's the day you need to deal with that. You need to receive the grace of Christ as you have in your conversion and go and sin no more. But this is also a word to those of you who have not trusted in Jesus. And I would venture to say there are some of you here today that have refused the grace of Christ. So as Adam comes, our musicians come, we're going to have our pastors here at the end of the aisle. We would love to hear from you. Today's the day you need to do business with Christ. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? That's the question. But you have to do it on Jesus' terms, not yours. So won't you come as we stand and as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.